Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Let's get Brexit done. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who is in the Bay Area. And today we are joined by TV pundit Laura Babcock in Hamilton. And we've just seen her daughter on the screen, journalist Emma Burnell, who doesn't look like her former self. And <laughs> by the man who looks significantly better than he did in 2013 when he's outside the White House, Doug Levy in San Francisco. Say hello, folks, everybody. Hi, everyone. Hello, good to see you. In a week that has seen the world hold its collective breath in anticipation of next week's US election, we go to Canada and we ask how will the outcome of next week's US election affect Canadian politics and what do the results of the October by-elections tell us about the state of Canadian politics? The next leader of the Green Party of Canada, Annemie Paul. The Green Party made history, electing Annemi Paul, Canada's first black federal party leader. The human rights lawyer says her party will push for a stronger social net to help Canadians reeling from the pandemic, along with combating climate change. This is a moment that demands daring, courageous leadership. We're on the verge of a big change. A major shakeup, as Elizabeth May has been the party's guiding force since 2006. I'm a face people have known for 14 years. Really, time for a new face. It really is time for something new and different and exciting. But putting in face time for the candidates has been tough with the pandemic. Sometimes they're actually kind of teeing it up for another party. Political science professor Lori Turnbull says if the party wants to add to its three seats in parliament, it needs to show more versatility. Everybody cares about the environment, but are people going to vote on that basis or not? It, that's always going to be their struggle, I think. Laura, Scott Moe's Saskatchewan party won its fourth successive majority government. And it's, it's the first party to achieve this uh, since uh, in some 60 years. What does this tell us about fringe right wing movements in Canada, but also just about conservative politics? Uh, well, 
there's a lot going on. We also had by-elections this past week in Toronto, which were significant. Um, whether or not in our by-elections, these were liberal strongholds, downtown Toronto kind of area. And it was either going to be that uh, the Trudeau government doing well or a repudiation of the government as by-elections often are, or an opportunity to sort of take a pulse. So it was, it was expected that uh, they would win both, and they did, but one of them was quite close. And the other one, the new leader of the Green Party ran and did very well. Um, so Canada, as you guys know, is really, really geographically diverse and politically diverse as well. And so what's happening in Saskatchewan is going to be more different in many ways than what's happening in Quebec and Ontario. Yeah, so as we know, Canada, as I mentioned, is geographically very diverse. And so in the prairies, you tend to see more of a conservative um, stronghold there. And then as you get towards Alberta, it gets a little bit more extreme. We're seeing the movement towards Wexit and people feeling very much disenfranchised from sort of the power financial centers of Canada, which you see in, in Ontario primarily and in Quebec. Uh, and then over the mountains, you get into BC, which tends to be a little bit more liberal, even NDP moving on the spectrum. So it's a very, very big country all the way across, um, but not surprising results in any of the by-elections, really. Let me answer me a question. So there's a new leader of the Green Party, but she's not actually in Parliament. Um, so how exactly does that work before we go on to how well she did in her by-election result? Yeah, week. so so the way that it works is that um, they go seat shopping. <laughs> we saw that with Jagmeet Singh. You try to find somebody else in the party who's willing to give up their seat. There aren't a lot of green seats, as we know, in the Canadian Parliament. They're a very, very small party. But it was lovely to see Elizabeth May, who was the leader of the Green Party and really put them on the map, offer up her seat uh, as an alternative once the by-election was lost. So that was a sign, really, of passing of the torch, of, of saying, you know, we are going to the new leadership in the party. And Elizabeth May, who I had a chance to interview over the years at different times, she very much was the brand of the modern Green Party in Canada. She was a very good parliamentarian. She was, a, you know, very good at communicating. But I think she represented as far as she could take the Green Party. And so now under this new leadership with a dynamic new younger leader uh, who is diverse and, and I have found to be very good at communicating, very on the mark, I think we're going to see possibly an opportunity Laura, it, it's, it's happened again. Uh, just that very last bit. Yeah, I yeah. lean back. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. You, you can't lean back. You, your mic is only picking you up when you're quite close. So just do that last line again. I think we have an opportunity for Canada to see a more robust Green Party as an option because the new leader is very good at communication, even with the defeat managed to leverage that time in the media to get the message across about the Green Party, have taken some strong positions on important issues already. And so I, I think it's you know going to be a long time before the Green Party is the third party in this country. But uh, it is exciting to see a new leader. And it is exciting to see that Elizabeth May, the previous leader, is so supportive of the new leadership. Okay, so if we just specifically look at those results in, in Toronto Centre, the Liberal uh, candidate got... Ten and a half thousand votes. The Green candidate got eight, just over eight thousand, and the New Democratic Party got four thousand too. With the Conservatives really trailing quite badly in fourth place, with only one and a half thousand votes. Um, what does that tell us about that left of centre vote? That it's so incredibly split, and is that almost like a mirror to what we're potentially seeing 
in uh, in the center of Canada, in, 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 in Western Canada, with the fact that you do have a Saskatchewan party, you have the Wexit party, which is now the Maverick party, all squeezing the Conservatives uh, for votes. Is this some kind of weird mirror, almost in effect? I don't think so necessarily, because that particular, those particular writings in Toronto are absolute liberal strongholds. Right. And so the fact that the Green Party did as well is because the new leader was running and did a spectacular campaign. But I, I don't look at those as being an indicator of the rest of the country. I think that the uh, the liberals are always going to own those particular ridings. It was more about was there going to be any kind of a slapback on Trudeau for the latest shenanigans in Ottawa? And there really wasn't. I do think, though, in Canada, we are always going to have a strong third party on the spectrum on the left. It's always been important. We kind of look at our NDP party, our new Democratic Party, as the conscience of Canada, if you will. The Liberal Party has been the longest governing party. We sort of see them as the pragmatic center ground where you've got enough of the fiscal conservatism, although people would argue during the pandemic there hasn't been evidence of that. But socially liberal, fiscal conservative, centrist kind of on the spectrum politically, that's what the Liberal Party of Canada has always cleverly been able to brand themselves and hold that ground and stand power for so long. And so you've got the the NDP that pushes them. And right now in a minority government situation, the NDP propped up the Liberal government from a potential election just last week. And they do it so they can push some of their more left agendas. You almost get the sense in Canada that we'd really like the left agendas to rule the day, but we know it's not really practical. And so the Liberal Party gets the job, takes on these left-wing policies. uh, And then you've got, as we talked about, the conservative ethos on the other side, right? And what is is that about? And there are some radical elements in that, as there are radical elements on the left. So, um, you know, Canada has always felt very much more to be center, center left at least in the 48 years that I've occupied <laughs> the space. Uh, and and I think it will continue to trend that way. So I wouldn't read too much into the by-election results just because they were very, very much liberal writings. It was more about the Trudeau government than anything else. And how is the Canadian political firmament bracing itself for next week's election down south? Very obviously, you are the country that it's going to affect the most. Oh, we're very, very concerned. We're concerned really about three scenarios. We're concerned about if Trump wins again, what does that look like in terms of just the destabilization of the democratic norms around the world? I don't think it necessarily will imperil Canada as a democracy, but it will certainly put a tremendous amount of pressure on all of us psychologically and in every other way. I mean, there are neighbors. Trump winning again, I think we all fear. Trump losing and the uprising that might happen between January 20th when Biden would take over is also gravely disconcerting to us. I mean, we share an open border with the United States and we see militias in states that are adjacent to the border. And we see um, that sort of that fermenting of, of a civil war. And and we have concerns about the safety of all of our American friends and cousins and family, which I have. We all pretty much do. Uh, and we're very much concerned about what that means for the destabilization of our border and our own safety. So, so we have we share those two concerns, a loss or a win, uh, you know, and threatens Canada. In terms of the Canadian politics, you know, we don't want to have some of the worst parts of Trumpism bleeding into our country. We are not without our own issues around racism. We are not without our own right-wing, our white supremacist parties in the country. And they've been getting emboldened by some. 
So we are being affected by by that narrative. And we're seeing, uh, uh, you know, I spent last summer on uh, City Hall trying to keep white supremacists from intimidating people from diverse communities when they got off the bus downtown. Uh, we had to do it every Saturday to let them know that, you know, so this is real in Canada. This is not something that is only happening in the U.S. So we have a lot of concerns. And I think anything short of an absolute repudiation of Trumpism, anything short of a 100% if as close as you can get in the U.S., so more than 51%, it has to be bigger than that. Biden uh, is going to send a message that people continue to destabilize. It has to be a huge win. And and I think we have to see Biden make a real effort to unite the U.S. and to quell this white, this right-wing extremism. Uh, Canada is very, very nervous. Laura, I didn't realize that when uh, a U.S. candidate wins the presidency, that it's the, the Canadian prime minister that gives him traditionally his first international call. How important historically has the relationship between the Canadian Prime Minister and the US President actually been for US-Canadian relations, would you say? Well, it it impacts us in different ways. I mean, if you look back, famously, Nixon hated Trudeau's father. I mean, hated, hated, right? Uh, We found out the lengths that he went through to keep an eye on Trudeau's dad back in the day. Uh, And we've seen other times where, you know, Mulroney and Reagan got along famously. And and we've seen times where Obama and Trudeau had a bromance that we all enjoyed very much. So I think what it does when they get along well is it reduces friction. It allows us, they're our largest trading partner. It allows trade to flow well. Uh, it allows both countries to be successful. And because we have such border traffic and so many families that are on both sides of the border, I think overall it's the preferred scenario for both countries. We're supposed to be great neighbors with the longest open border in the world. We, we don't want to have our president and our prime minister at odds like that. And certainly since Trump came in, uh, we all remember Trudeau made those comments at that international meeting. The relationship hasn't been fantastic between Trudeau and Trump. And Trudeau has tried to keep his powder dry and he's really restrained himself. himself. But we had to renegotiate the North American Free Trade Agreement. And it, it put a lot of our industries into, if not jeopardy, at least severe disruption. So, you know, they don't have to be besties, although they have been in the past, but we do have a vested interest financially, economically and psychologically to get along well. And on that note, we're going to leave the US uh, to last. We're going to go over the Atlantic and go and speak to Emma Burnell about the schism, the infighting, the civil war in the Labour Party. A year ago, his record on anti-Semitism overshadowed the election campaign, contributing to Labour's comprehensive defeat at the polls. Today, once again, after a damning report by the Equalities and Human Rights Commission, Jeremy Corbyn's reluctance to apologise has cost him dear, suspension from the party he once led. Very shocked and very disappointed. I've been in the Labour Party all my life. And I want to make it absolutely clear anti-Semitism has no place whatsoever in our party or our movement. Earlier, the scale of the criticism in the report led to this apology from Mr Corbyn's successor. I found this report hard to read, and it is a day of shame for the Labour Party. We have failed Jewish people. The report found the Labour Party responsible for unlawful acts of harassment and discrimination. There were 23 instances of political interference by the leader of the opposition's office, and it failed to provide adequate training to those handling anti-Semitism complaints. 
But asked about Mr Corbyn's role, Keir Starmer seemed reluctant at first to point the finger. Do you think that your predecessor was ever fit to be leader of the Labour Party? And do you think that he still has a place in the party now? The report doesn't make individual findings about Jeremy Corbyn. It has strong findings about a collective failure of leadership. A social media post by Mr Corbyn an hour later changed all that. He wrote that the scale of the problem was also dramatically overstated for political reasons by our opponents inside and outside the party. Keir Starmer decided he had to act. I made it clear that we won't tolerate anti-Semitism or the denial of anti-Semitism through the suggestion that it's exaggerated or factional. And that's why I was disappointed with Jeremy Corbyn's response. Emma Burnell, I know anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is an issue which you uh, you take extremely personally. And on a previous podcast, you got quite emotional about talking about the Labour Party and the fact that you had this stain against it um, before the last election. Uh, is the Labour Party now at war or am I dramatically overstating that for purely reasons of the podcast? Um. Oh, it's a really interesting question because people seem to have very varying views on, on it. There is a rally being held tonight um, in defence of Jeremy Corbyn, who has been suspended from the Labour Party, not because of the previous actions that were covered in the EHRC report, the Equality of Human Rights Commission report, which were you know, really, really bad. I mean, it was as bad as it could possibly be within the bounds of that report's scope for the Labour Party. Um, but because his response to it was as tinnied as his response to everything else has been. And to be honest, he was told what Keir Starmer was going to say about people who downplayed the contents of the report and said it was factional. He made a choice to, to force the Labour Party, not leadership because it came from the General Secretary's office, but force them into the position they're now in where they've had to suspend him and suspend the whip. Okay. All right. Let's go through this bit by bit. And so people that weren't aware of this uh, allegation or the uh, the various allegations of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party can catch up. Uh, just very quickly, first off, I'll give you a multi-part question so you can just step through them. What exactly were uh, the uh, accusations of anti-Semitism? And then what was uh, Jeremy Corbyn's response? Who exactly are the Equality and Human Rights Commission? And why did Keir Starmer, the new leader, commission them to do a report on anti-Semitism within the Labour Party? Well, in terms of the allegations, they're multiple. There have been like hundreds and hundreds, possibly thousands of allegations of anti-Semitism, particularly on social media. Um, Lots and lots of complaints going into the party. The reason that the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which were a body set up under the Labour Party or the previous Labour government, decided to investigate the Labour Party, and they were, I'm just to correct you, they were not invited to do so by Keir Starmer. Um, they did so because they have a remit to do that. Um, the only other political party that they've investigated in the UK is the BNP. That's how shameful it is. The avowedly fascist party, the only other party that have been investigated. So the EHRC were very unlikely to find Labour institutionally anti-Semitic. What they did find was that the Labour Party fundamentally and completely failed in all of its processes to both deal with anti-Semitism properly and also to stop internal interference on a political basis. And those were the key 
and the Labour Party was made a place that was safe for harassers of Jews and not for and unsafe for Jewish people. Um, you know, it, it, it couldn't have been any worse. Jeremy Corbyn's response was to start off with the boilerplate anti-Semitism and terrible one anti-Semite and the party is too many. But he then went on to make the accusation that that accusations of anti-Semitism had been overblown and uh, that this had been done for factional reasons. And that was exactly what Keir Starmer had said that would, would not be acceptable as part of the narrative around this report, not five minutes um, before. In a speech he had apparently previewed to Corbyn, so Corbyn knew what he was going to say. So why, why do you think Corbyn said what he said? Because Corbyn cannot admit that he's wrong and he just can't take his lungs. So he's, his ego is considerably bigger than his brain, as far as I can tell. What has been the major ramifications of Corbyn sweeping this under the carpet, downplaying it, turning a tin ear, whatever the expression is, to the Labour Party today in the last 24 hours? Most Labour Party members have welcomed is probably the wrong word because, it, as I say, it's, it's a feeling of, of shame and revulsion. But that's the, that's the feeling of the majority of Labour Party. But some on the left, have argued that this is a just a political attack again, you know, of uh, powerful interests and all of that stuff. And it's you know really really grim stuff. The people who kind of built their careers and their lives around Jeremy Corbyn aren't giving that up yet. They're the ones who are going out and demonstrating, speaking to that rally. Interestingly, are three of the socialist campaign group, which is the the, the hard left faction in Parliament MPs. Now, I would have expected John McDonnell and Diane Abbott to be there. They don't surprise me because they are almost certainly going to retire at the next election. So if they happen to lose the Labour whip or decide to walk away from the Labour whip, it, it's not a big deal for them if someone Labour stands against them. The one I'm more surprised at is Richard Bergen, who will also be speaking at this rally because he's young, very ambitious, ran to be deputy leader, desperately wants to be the leader from the left. If he loses the whip over whatever he says at this rally tonight, which is perfectly possible, he could be run against by a Labour candidate or be deselected. That, that's his career gone. So I was more impressed by another member of the Socialist Campaign Group, Nadia Whitten, whose statement was actually really well thought through, very measured, really reaching out to the Jewish community and, and not trying to downplay the issues at all. So I think there's definitely a split amongst that group. I thought that split was going to be those who are likely to retire and those who aren't. But Richard Bergen taking that position has surprised me somewhat. Nobody actually believes Jeremy Corbyn is anti-Semitic, do they? And uh, Keir Starmie said as much. Lots of people believe that. Whether it's true or not, I mean, I can't, I can't see into Jeremy Corbyn's heart. I can tell you that he has, over the years, exhibited some behaviours that are very questionable. Um. Yeah, the, the one that, that really flipped my mind on it was the English irony comment. Yeah, they've lived here all their lives, but they have no concept of English irony. That's just kind of gross. And when you make someone a them, that's a problem. Emma, historically on the left, at the start of um, socialist thought in the 19th century, there has been a strain of anti-Semitism, which was much more marked and profound in Central and Eastern Europe. And there's no two ways about it. Y yes, Karl Marx, who wrote Das Kapital, Jewish, Engels, etc. 
But by the time the Communist Party, and I'm not conflating communism with socialism, but for just for the sake of this, it's all left to centre thought. Uh, by the time the Communist Party took hold in Russia, because of because of pogroms, etc., there always has been this strain, even though. Um, left to centre political thought is all supposed to be about the brotherhood of man and the workers, that somehow it has had this strain of anti-Semitism. And I could be incredibly naive now that within British left of centre thought, we, we didn't necessarily think that the Labour Party had that strain historically, historically. And we can look at Cable Street and those things in the 1930s where Many socialists were of Jewish extraction and other socialists came to defend Jewish people in, in the East End of London. For many people on the left, is this a case of I'm not anti-Semitic, but I'm anti-Zionist and the things getting conflated and then people not being able to hear the nuanced difference between the two. It's a case of I'm pro-Palestinian. I am very much um, anti the state of Israel, but of course I'm not anti-Semitic. Is that part of this issue as opposed to out and out anti-Semitism, which of course is wrong? I'm just trying to understand, is there an argument for saying that that is part of this? Because I do not see somebody like Jeremy Corbyn uh, what you've said is was was a great was a great example, and I, I'm and I'm not going to take to task about that. But I don't see those who I would class 1970s lefties as being anti-Semitic, but they're definitely anti-Zionist. Is one of Jeremy Corbyn's problems denounced, or he couldn't denounce um, his old comrades in arms who have said some very questionable things. So it's a long-winded roundabout question. I made a big statement at the start, giving it some historical perspective. Shoot. Okay, so no, the British left in its uh, infancy wasn't particularly anti I mean, it had other problems, and there were, probably was a strain of that. Um, Virginia Woolf, who was, I think, an early Fabian, certainly part of the Bloomsbury set, so part of that sort of lefty set. She was pretty anti-Semitic. I think that largely the post-50s anti-colonialism movement that is affects a lot of the left's foreign policy got conflated with anti-Israel. Uh, yeah, and, and the problem is, is there, so you can be as critical as you want to be and should be of the government of Bibi Netanyahu, the behaviour of that particular Israeli state and government, the incursions into Palestine, the treatment of the Palestinian people. Where I am troubled is the idea, the fairly unique idea that Israel alone shouldn't exist. Because lots of other, you know, loads of geopolitical change has happened since the establishment of the state of Israel. And there isn't like a whole bunch of people going, but why isn't Yugoslavia still there? Um, you know, so for me, it troubles me. You know, why are we talking about, um, why, why aren't we still talking about Myanmar? Or, or why aren't we talking about, you know, there are just, there's too much focus on this one country and this one poorly behaving government for it to be coincidental for me. And that's, that is where I get, um, where I feel that there's a real problem on the British left. In terms of Jeremy Corbyn, I think you can't be leader of the Labour Party and not apologise for inviting a man who actually used the blood libel 
to speak in Parliament. Yeah, yeah, that's just that's just politics 101. He just has never been able to accept that he played a part in, in the problems that we had. And that was really the only first step you can take into solving those problems. Well, and you make a really important point, which is the confusion between criticizing the current Israeli government versus criticizing all Jews. Doug, you're Jewish, and I know you're a, a, bit, a bit of an Anglophile. Um, these accusations of, of anti-Semitism, which I know we did talk about them lo- uh, last year on, on Mid-Atlantic, but how do they strike you? And, ha- and how does the rising tide of anti-Semitism um, feel to somebody who is Jewish, whether it is on this side of the Atlantic or on the other, being in the European side of the Atlantic? My sense is that what's happening in Great Britain is very similar to what we've seen in the United States and many other places. I think there's a combination of genuine anti-Semitism as well as a perpetuation of anti-Semitic messages by people who relatively innocently don't realize that they are passing on anti-Semitic messages. Now, if you're an elected official, to not recognize an anti-Semitic trope before passing it on, that's malpractice and you should not be an elected official. But for example, we've had sports celebrities who have gotten in trouble for retweeting things that have taken on prominent Jews. And I'd like to think more people would know better. Sadly, they don't. There was a survey recently that showed that a significant number of people in the United States aren't even sure that the Holocaust existed. Ask my neighbors in New York, the ones who escaped Nazi Germany, if it was real. We have a dumb population. It's really sad. And, and it's, I mean, it's anti-Semitic to hold all Jews accountable for the Israeli government. Look, what are my neighbors who are Jewish down the road, third generation living in the UK, what have they got to do with Israel? Well, and, and it's just the same as any other ethnic group. It's like, I'm Jewish, but I have almost nothing in common with probably most other Jewish people. I mean, I, I don't know. We're not, we're not all the same. That's the whole I, point. And I am very critical of many of the policies by the Israeli government, um, but it's also really not something that I'm an expert on, so I kind of stay out of it. I care about my community however you measure it. And that's an important thing. And what's upsetting in the United States is that we've had a rise in anti-Semitism on on two fronts that I've seen very clearly. One is the innocent anti-Semitism that that we've seen from some of the newer members of Congress, as an example. And at least a few of them, after stepping onto a landmine, they've learned and actually improved and have a better understanding. There are a lot of people who are upset about the same kind of discrimination against their own ethnic groups, yet don't realize that some of the things that they're saying and doing reflect discrimination against Jews or others. That's a problem we have to deal with. And I think that's where more of us talking with each other will help a lot. And then we've got the people who are anti-Semitic because they think it's going to help them get more power. Sadly, it does seem to work. We have at least two, probably more, 
within the U.S. White House who exhibit overt anti-Semitic behavior. And that's a real so, big problem. So I, this is what I just get incredibly confused by all of this. And I think you've, you've painted uh, a, a really good scenario that there are some rap stars, etc., who are influenced by the teachings of the Nation of Islam that say some stupid stuff, right? And they haven't really thought it through, full stop, right? And what you can say to some of their credit is when they've been called out on it, they're going, oh, but I didn't mean to be offensive type of thing, right? But then specifically to do with this administration, what I'm confused about is for me, the overt anti-Semitic dog whistles. But then Trump's son-in-law, Kushner, is Jewish. Stephen Miller, one of his key um, advisors, is Jewish. I just but don't just get it. You're Jewish, but just because you're Jewish, it doesn't mean you have all the same political thoughts. That's something which... I really wish more people would understand. It's just like not but, every black American has the same politics either. But but when people are saying things which are, let's not say anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, just so we're really clear, and there are key Jewish members of the administration, I get confused, Doug. My brain isn't big enough to understand that. I, I get so It's actually... Those who support Jeremy Corbyn, they're a very, very loud, but very small minority. But, you know, there are anti-Zionist Jews because, as Doug says, you know, there's all flavours of, of political opinion amongst all sorts. Yeah, but that I understand. One so, minute, Emma, that bit I understand. I get somebody saying um, I'm, I'm not Zionist, I'm anti-Zionist, but when people are coming out with memes which are... Uh, Jews with hooked noses saying that they own all the banks. There's a cabal uh, where, whereby uh, Jews are controlling Hollywood and, and the media and the banking industry. That's nothing to do with Zionism. That's anti-Semitic. That's anti-Jewish, right? But those are the people that got Trump elected. Trump actually, camp you know, the Trump campaign put messages like that out in 2016. And some of the people that spread those messages are his top advisors. So now, when, asked about when those people in Charlottesville are saying Jews shall not replace us, Stephen Miller is Jewish and he's Trump's right hand man. And I don't understand what he's not saying. I just, I'm Stephen Miller wants money and power, power. the same no, way power, that Trump does. Power. So here's right. Exactly. It's power. And here's the way it works. One of Trump's biggest money sources during 2016 for sure and probably since i haven't seen the numbers more recently sheldon adelson a casino magnet in nevada who is zionist very very right wing on israeli politics and basically as long as trump does what adelson says he gets a lot of support, money support. And that's what they want. That's why Trump has been so closely tied to Netanyahu. But there are a lot of other Jews in the United States that think Adelson is, a, is on the wrong side of everything. I'm one of those. Um, you know, 
being supportive of Adelson is not necessarily being pro-Jewish or even pro-Israel. It's pro one particular party in Israel. And it's just the same as the Christians, or the, especially the Catholics, supporting Trump because all they care about, all many of them care about, is abortion. Can I weigh in here just a slight something we haven't mentioned yet? Uh, I agree it's about power and there's no real belief system other than power and control and money to them, to some of them anyway. But I grew up in, an, in a fundamental evangelical home. My father was an evangelical pastor, right? And one of the magazines that we had, in addition to focus on the family coming in, was Friends of Israel. And it is deeply steeped in the evangelical tradition in the United States, especially and up here in Canada, this absolute loyalty to Israel. And so when you look at how Trump courted the evangelicals in the Judeo-Christian tradition, I mean, I, I had to memorize the Old Testament as a child. You know, it, it is we are we are there's a there's something there that runs deep. And so I don't, I don't just think it's about Edelson. I don't just think it's about money. I think it's about keeping the evangelicals close. Uh, thank you for the point of clarification. And also thank you for the three of you for showing you um, how naive I am uh, when, when it comes to what people will do to obtain uh, power and, and money, uh, even if it goes against uh, uh, fundamentally um, who they are as people, their ethnicity uh, and, and their religion. I just don't really understand that, but I'm the naive one and stuff. Well, remember, uh, a lot of people are Jewish, but they don't necessarily practice the Jewish faith. Doug, that I understand, right? But those anti-Semites don't make the distinction. They don't make the distinction between liberal, sec secular Jew uh, Jewish people and Orthodox Jewish people. Uh, as far as they're concerned, they all have like three tails and, uh, and, and are evil. I completely understand that, but I'd say it's a distinction that they don't make. However, go on, go on, Laura. The new Borat, have you seen the new Borat movie? Uh, I absolutely have. So that scene that you're describing with the, the long nose and the, the I mean, it, that, <laughs> that moment in the synagogue when his Borat character uh, dressed up as everything that, that people think terribly about Jewish people meets with some Holocaust survivors, it's, it's very, very powerful. Um, and and I, just, I, I just think it's, it's so complex, especially in the U.S., just having been raised in that culture, right? Uh, <laughs> we were Baptist convention and we were a little bit on the extreme version even within that particular faith community in my family. And, and so, I don't know, uh, I, I'm glad that, I don't think you're naive, Royfield. I think that you're a good person who would not stray from your, your core values for power and money. But I just, you know, maybe I'm too much of a cynic. I'm just not that shocked by it all. Just on uh, the Borat film, I actually know Sasha Baron Cohen uh, quite well and went, went round to his parents' house on, on Sabbath and, and broke bread with them. And I must admit, he is one of the cleverest and funniest people I've ever personally met. I don't like those Borat movies. And I'm no po-faced, uh, politically correct shrill. Though that film takes in a very clear narrative of the ignorance that he has, the, the character has towards his daughter and how he doesn't think that women can do anything uh, and then he realizes that in America, women can obtain things. And then things change in Kazakhstan. I'd say people who are anti-Semitic will just laugh at them and it will just reinforce their beliefs. The overall arc of that story is going to be lost on them. However, it's some of the most vile, um, racist stereotypes are played for gags. And I personally think that Sasha is much better than that. 
He's so clever. And he's somebody who is so proud of his Jewish identity. But there's going to be many people that are anti-Semitic that just look at that and, and just laugh. But that's just me. That's just me. And I said, I, 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 I was going to say, as my husband said, after I wanted to watch the movie because of its import in the current conversation, right? It seemed to be timed well and has a lot to say. Uh, but as we watched it, it was hard to stay watching it. And my husband said, these movies are a commitment, you know, because there's so much vile in that movie that to process it all, especially the stuff around the daughter, I mean, we could go on all day. It's a hard movie to watch. Yeah. Anyway, it's not for me to say what he should do. And he's, our career paths have taken somewhat of a, a, a massive divergence since we used to hang out in, in 1996. So one person's a, a a multi-millionaire Hollywood superstar and uh, dare I say I'm not so mm-hmm. so anyway so <laughs> who am I to tell him what to do moving swiftly on uh, we're going to stay talking about uh, US politics and we enter the election's uh, final stretch it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There have been record numbers voting early amid claims the long lines are attempts to dissuade voters. There's various ways that uh, governments are now trying to suppress the vote, and one of them is uh, a long line keeping people from voting. There's too many efforts here to take away our rights and to take history backwards. And I'm angered by it. I'm really surprised at myself that I stayed in the line. Because when I was at the end of it, or at the back of it, I actually wanted to get back in my car. We visited multiple polling stations, and almost everyone we spoke to was suspicious about the cutbacks in voting locations and the system hiccups. It's getting more challenging, and I'm like, why? You know what I'm saying? So I do feel like there's some suppression a little bit. Everyone should matter, but we don't. As black Americans don't matter. And it's unfortunate that it has to be that way in a country that's supposed to be a free country. There are about a million newly registered voters, and that's why they're pressing everyone to get out 
and cast their vote because it could count here in Georgia. I'm so excited and I'm ready to do it again and again and again and again. I voted! I Citizens or celebrities, they realise how crucial the votes here are. This probably be one of the most important elections ever, if I'm honest. Tell me why. Uh, because it's a lot at stake. Mm-hmm. It's a lot at stake. We need some changes, and um, this is a lot at stake all the way around the board. We got to get out here and let our voices be heard. So that's why we're here. And in the birthplace of America's civil rights movement, there's a chilling warning from one of Atlanta's most famous families. The president sometimes acts as if he's a king or or queen or a dictator. And that's not the way democracy operates. He acts in a fascist way. Do you think America is looking at a threat to democracy here? Oh, no question. Doug, what should we look out for before the US election on Tuesday? Is it uh, the position of the prospective candidates in the polls? Is it Walmart removing all guns and ammunition from its sales floors? Or is it the historic lines of voters queuing to vote? I think the only thing that's going to really matter is the lines of voters. Right now, you know, we're recording this a couple of days before the election. And in Texas, probably later today, we will see more people already voted than all the voters who cast ballots in 2016. So whether you're Republican or Democrat, more people voting is good for democracy. So that's a really good thing. But I think where people should be paying really close attention are two areas. One, watch to see the courts. The Trump campaign has been very aggressive working with the Republican National Committee and many local groups coming up with whatever they can to to reduce the voting, to limit the number of ballots that can be counted. Some of the things they've done or tried to do are truly preposterous. And some of them, for lots of reasons, get endorsed by the courts. So you're going to see ballots set aside. And that's a problem. If there's enough ballots set aside and enough people deterred from voting because they're confused or scared or whatever, or they can't get to the polls because the voting location is too far away, all of those things are bad. And I think we're going to see a lot of that in the next couple of days. Uh, Specifically, Doug, can you zero in on which jurisdiction that ruling has actually been made? Well, we've had very significant court rulings that affect uh, balloting in North Carolina and Pennsylvania and Michigan so far. In Pennsylvania, the ruling went against what the Republicans were trying to do. In North Carolina, uh, I believe the latest ruling will allow them to set aside more of the ballots. There's a lot of confusion. We've got more people casting ballots uh, by mail or early than in the past, and every state's got different rules. In some states, you have a a double envelope system, and there's a particular place where you have to sign it, sign the ballot in order for it to be authenticated, but there's another envelope inside that keeps your your votes secret. Not everybody realizes that. So, for example, the Democrats have been calling voters all across Florida, making sure they know you've got to sign the outside of that envelope. Otherwise, the ballot gets thrown away. 
it's really, really complicated. And the other thing, which is worrisome, and I know that that uh, officials on both sides of the aisle are actually concerned about this, it is going to be physically impossible for all the votes to be counted on election day in many states, if not all of the states. Uh, there are actually a couple of states where they're saying it's going to be more than a week for lots of legitimate reasons. The Trump campaign and Trump in particular has been making the case that anything that doesn't happen on election day is invalid. That's ridiculous based on everything, including what's happened in every prior election and the law, which is kind of important. But they're setting up a scenario where whatever happens on election day is the election and they're going to rush to court in a lot of places trying to stop the counting of ballots that were legitimately cast before the before the polls closed. And that's potentially really ugly. The way that I set up the question, is it the polls, which we need to re- really look at? Uh, well, is- the, the, the opinion polls don't worry. Just at this point, they're all within the margin of error. So it's just not worth paying a lot of attention to them. The national opinion poll isn't, but you're on about the various statewide ones in the battleground states, which are within the I've, margin of error. I've, I've done enough work in individual states in the past to know that even the best polls, it's not an exact science. Don't waste your time thinking about the polls. The campaigns do a different kind of polling, and those polls we don't have access to may give better insights. But the ones that we're reading in the newspaper or seeing on TV... It just doesn't matter. It's all about who votes. Does their ballot get counted? Let's go on to who's actually voting, because early numbers show a a record youth turnout. We take Florida, for example, one of the key battleground states. As of October 21st, over a quarter of a million voters aged between 18 and 29 already cast their ballot. Isn't that surely going to also skew any kind of modelling of the electorate? The fact that so many Gen Zs and millennials are actually going to be voting in this election. And we know that they historically skew more Democrat than Republican. I don't think we can count on any of that, honestly. Um, for example, in Texas... When Wait a minute, did I say Gen Z? I did, didn't I? Gen did. Z. Gen Z, God damn it! <laughs> you're, 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 you're in California. We say Z. Yes, there's reason to think those people are motivated by a certain belief. But early voting in Texas, as of yesterday, was skewing Republican. We know that our opinion polls show that Trump has really solid support among registered Republicans. But we don't know that those millions of people who have voted early in Texas or Florida or any place else are Trump votes. They may be. We don't know. And there's another variable here that I think is going to really play into the turnout on Election Day, especially in Florida, where you have relatively good weather. COVID cases are really, really escalating. There are a lot of people who will have genuine fears of going to the polls. And I think that's going to have an impact on the result. Okay. Um The last part of this kind of equation, 
definitely viewed from the outside of the world is these 17 million new uh, gun purchases that have been made uh, this year. What does that tell us about America that in every presidential election year, there is a spike in gun sales? And the fact that this one, as this one in terms of the spike, has far exceeded the last spike, which was 2016. What does it say about America? Should the rest of the world be scared shitless? I won't say how scared people should be, but when you have a candidate who is actively campaigning for violence and where you have a significant number of people who support that candidate, believing that there is widespread chaos, rioting, and violence in democratically run, Democrat-run cities. Some of those people are scared. Now, they're, they're really scared because they believe that the situation in places like Portland and Seattle and Los Angeles and wherever else is very different from how it really is. I'm not saying there's no violence. There's definitely been some violence, but it's been far less and far more contained than the president would have them believe. But they believe it. They go buy guns. There are also people on the left who are buying guns because they're afraid that the right wing nut jobs are going to come after them, too, because we saw that in Kenosha. It's a powder keg. I also have faith in Americans. I'm hopeful that this will not be as close of an election as the polls would indicate, because fundamentally, we all want to get along, don't we, damn it? Can I just point out the fact that you had Trump not 24 hours ago in a speech say, Joe Biden gets shot in three weeks. Uh, are you ready for Kamala? I mean, how that is just sort of, you're, we're so nerd, not only to his bombast and his promotion of violence, but he basically put out the suggestion to his very malleable base of, you know what, even if Biden wins, he shouldn't stay there for long. And I know he was just trying to raise the specter, uh, the the most charitable way I can look at it, is he was trying to raise the specter of how bad Kamala would be number two. But in the past, that would be put forward in a way of, well, you know, he might be one heart, one heartbeat away from Kamala because he's old, right? That would have been as far as it would go in the past. This idea of, you got to think about Sarah Palin was too in the last time, right? Uh, but the idea of saying Biden will be shot and it, it doesn't even lead all of the newspaper headlines just goes to show how far we have sunk into this, not only this violent dialogue, but this low expectations that there's going to be a peaceful transfer of power. And and I, it just you, you, you know You know what, right? Whilst I utterly agree with what you said, got to be careful says that how far that we have sunk we haven't sunk they have sunk we have to be really clear that this is completely and utterly the other side um how far they've sunk that they could use such an egregious example to illustrate their point you're completely right laura historically you would have said heartbeat away but to go exactly to that analogy uh in a situation whereby just a month ago six weeks ago a teenage american walked down a street with a, with a machine gun and gun down two of his fellow citizens. They, and they the fact we have right wing kidnap a governor. Emma, yeah, yeah exa- absolutely, oh, absolutely. I'm shocked at the, 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 the shooting analogy, which is barely an analogy, more a trigger, as, as Laura said. Let's not forget that the reason he was invoking that was look at number two, she's a black woman. 
And it was, you know, evoking that fear of the black person and fear of having a woman in charge. You know, that's what he's, he's, he's invoking both the violent imagery, which, you know, he's playing with enormous fire, but he's doing so not even for, you know, uh, not even for hidden racist and sexist reasons. Mm -hmm. well, and, and, and the same thing with the Michigan governor. I mean, he's he has yet to condemn the people that were arrested for plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan and has continued to criticize them, which is really, really bad. But the reason I say weep and I'm not going to let us off on that, we have become as a culture, as a media culture inured to it, that it is not running on the front page of every newspaper that he went on the stump and said three weeks in Biden gets shot. He basically planted the seed of an assassination and that and that we didn't even cover it. It didn't it barely made a blip. So, so that's where I take accountability, right? We have just let ourselves be boiled in the pot of this of this fascist dictator that's rising. And I really hope that it's in time on November 3rd. And I just watched Trump be Bush v. Gore. Uh, and we are, you know, into rocky times on hanging chads and discounted ballots. And it's going to be a rough ride for the next few months. But I just don't want to let us off the hook for for just becoming part of that conversation as though it's not absolutely outrageous it's it's no. terrifying uh, you make you make a, a a very good point and a very strong point and th there are a few we's here there is we the chattering classes there is we the media then there is we the citizenry then there is we uh people who believe in the commons and 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 you know good political uh discourse um so that there are there are many we's there and and uh good point of clarification um emma burnell you you study um american politics very closely and i can't quite see what well, oh you've got to go into yeah all right okay um just very, very lastly emma burnell um you study american politics uh you you immerse yourself in it where will you be watching the results and uh who you'll be watching them with uh, well, I won't be because I'm working the next morning. So I will probably get up very early in the middle of the night. Um, so say get up at five and see where Florida is. Um, because I think Florida is the one to watch on the night. Florida will be underneath Georgia. It won't, won't have moved. Oh, Just... thank you. See, my geography is so <laughs> Doug, uh, where will you be watching the results of the election, sir? I don't know yet. I'm actually uh, still trying to figure that out. I have figured out when and where I'm going to vote, which is the most important thing. And um, I'll cross that bridge for watching the results when we get closer to the day. Oh, you're coming over to the East Bay. You said you're going to cross that bridge. That that was a literal metaphor, uh, not a, was it? Uh, we can maybe watch it together then, Doug. Laura Babcock, how about you, Mom? Oh, be camped out in my living room with my entire family as we are for every election. And I'll probably be uh, up for 48 hours doing, you know, different radio shows and TV shows and whatever else comes on the docket. But, you know, my kids are heavily invested in this. And then one point I want to make beyond the fear of violence and fascism and everything else we've talked about, racism, is the planet. You know, my kids are 10 and 12 and what they care about most right now is getting in a president that's going to reset uh, the climate change agenda, you know? So so they are absolutely terrified on that front. So we're gonna all be together and just talk through it and do whatever we need to do. Fantastic, and on that note, uh, we're gonna be now, now be positive 
and it's going to be takeaways of the last seven days. It's that time where uh, Doug is going to lift our spirits. Emma is going to make us fly and soar. And Laura is going to look to the stars. It's takeaways of the last seven days. All positive stuff. Doug Levy, we're going to start with you. As somebody who cares about civics and cares about participation, the best news that I have seen is what I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, which is we have more voters participating in this election than perhaps ever before in the United States. And as long as there is a lot of participation, I think most of us can be very comfortable with the result. And that's fabulous, as it should be. Short and sweet. Uh, Laura Babcock. So it was my 48th birthday. No. Yes, yesterday. I'm very proud of that. you know, growing growing older is a benefit too few people get to have. So I'm very proud to be 48 years old. And so we went horseback riding and we did a two hour trail ride with the kids uh, and a guide. And there was, we went through the, the autumn woods on treacherous muddy paths, which is exciting. We went by beautiful fields. And we also went into the water of Lake Erie and we were on a limestone sort of um, ground underneath the water and it was just absolutely breathtaking. But we could also see our, our American neighbors across the water. We're not that far apart. And as I was stand- on this big, beautiful, majestic course in the water of Lake Erie on a calm day, and it was perfectly quiet. And I just thought to myself, you know, um, no matter how dire it can seem, get out into nature. You know, if you have access to get near a body of water, it's incredibly healing for the soul. And to be on that beautiful horse, which was a rescue horse, this place rescues all their horses. It was just something that just buoyed my spirit, you know, and for our whole family, we just felt like we got outside, we got to see the beauty of nature. You know, it's, it's, it was just, it was something I encourage everybody to do, try to change what you're looking at. Uh, even in these COVID times, if you can get a different perspective, it can do wonders for the soul. Oh, lovely. Emma Burnell. People who follow me on Twitter, and I know we often um, talk about like, where we can be found afterwards, so some of our listeners will be following me on Twitter, will know that I've had some struggles um, during the COVID times, and yeah, it's really hard living on your own. It was hard enough during the first lockdown. If we lock down again and it's winter and it's dark and it's cold and it's harder to go out and it's harder to meet people outdoors. So I took control and I went to the doctor and I got myself some um, antidepressants, um, which will also apparently help with mad hormones because I'm I'm a couple of years behind Laura, but not far. And my God, being perimenopause is a bitch. Um, So I, and I just, the reason I'm saying this is because I'm not ashamed of it. I went and got the thing I needed from the doctor and it's helping so far, touch wood, you know, it's early days. Um, But I think one thing, so my takeaway of the week is the fact that I don't think I would have said that on a podcast two, three years ago. I think our greater acceptance around mental health is actually a really positive thing for the world. I love that. And may I just say, uh, I've had a chance to talk to a lot of my have it all together friends, right, who who have wonderful public images and very successful companies and everything else. And all of us are just holding on by our fingertips. 
and the discussion around mental health and what we need to do to support each other during this dark winter, as Biden called it, is hugely important. None of us, none of us are above, as Biden even said in a video he put out today, mental illness is a disease of the mind at the time. And to treat it any differently than a physical ailment um, is just so wrong. So um, thank you for saying that, Emma. We are all struggling and holding on and uh, whatever we can do helps, right? Absolutely. Mm. Um, one of the other podcasts that I do, a thing called Dumpty Dum, the, sh um, the show about The Archers, which is a long running radio soap in, in the UK. Uh, my my co-host, Lucy Freeman, about 18 months ago, commented about her travails with, with, with mental health, produced the biggest mailbag I've ever had on any podcast in eight years. And for the next three weeks, when she just said, I'm on antidepressants and I have been for years and me going out and just having a jog is not going to make things better. It's my brain chemistry. I can't help the way that I am. You know, if, if I had um, a broken leg or uh, some disease of the body, not of the mind, everybody would be like, oh, yeah, you need to get better. Take medication. My disease is a disease of the mind and said it was the biggest mailbag by far. And for the next three weeks afterwards, all the people that called in were just just talked about that. And it is one of the many things that um, I've, I've noticed and, 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 you, and you really have put your finger on it, you know, just and it's one of the great things of podcasts that people feel that it is a safe space to be open and, and, and to be honest. And it goes to the format being much more intimate than, let's say, a regular radio show that people can be much more honest about these things. But there has also been this slow sea change in all of our societies with people being able to, to admit that they have issues to do with their, their mental health. And for me, it kind of starts with Paul Gascoigne in 1990. People that don't know, Paul Gascoigne was an, Eng an English footballer who was an incredibly mercurial talent. And he gets subbed off in the semi-final of the World Cup and he burst out crying. Well, he got a red card, so he wouldn't be able to play yeah. the next match. That's it. That was it. He wasn't subbed off. Yes. No, he got a yellow card, which meant that he couldn't. So he wasn't actually taken off, but he got a yellow card, which meant he wouldn't be in the next match, which would have been the final. And he cried his eyes out. And that was a seminal moment for, for so many, I'm going to say men, in terms of looking at a hero showing, showing his emotions in such a public way. And everybody got it. And yes, did it mean that the world was about to end? No, but it was the first time a public figure in the United Kingdom displayed emotion and had another man put his arm around him. And for me, that was the start of, at least in Britain, our conversation around around mental health. And it's not just seen as weakness. But yeah, so thank you for that, Emma. Something uh, which I've had uh, an ongoing issue with my adult life has actually been my weight and I don't think I've ever been morbidly obese technically but as I've got older I have got bigger and then when I separated four years ago uh, there's nothing like a marriage breakup and uh, stress to make you lose weight and you couple that with going to the gym within five weeks four weeks i went i dropped almost two stone in weight it was just worry stress and the gym it's a potent combination so my takeaway of the last seven days has been fasting i went to canada and had to stay in isolation for 
for 14 days and I didn't eat for at least half of those days. And not only do we eat too much in our in our in all of our Western cultures, it satiates us, you know, we, we become tired mentally as well as physically because we, we eat so much. You don't necessarily need breakfast. You don't need three meals a day. Yes, you need to eat healthily, but um, and I always get the word wrong. Is it ketosis or kenosis? I, I, I always forget, but ketosis with a K-E-T-O. Thank you. If you can go three days of eating minimally, you feel so energized on that third day. It's a shocker. It's an utter shocker. Your mind is clear. You feel you feel so energetic. And so my takeaway is that if you can fast regularly, you'll feel so much better. And if you can get over the first couple of days with those natural cravings, which are more habit forming than anything, it's actually relatively easy. You'll, you'll surprise it, but it, the first couple of days are a killer, the first 48 hours. And I've just found it empowering not eating as much. It has to be said, me being in quarantine made it so much easier because I didn't have other people saying, what shall we eat? Let's go out and eat. Or just watching somebody else eat. So I, there are some big caveats to that to make it much easier. Lock yourself away from the rest of humanity and it is a much easier thing to do. Anyway, so that's been us. Um, this has been um, a rather long recording, everybody. If you're listening to this, you're going to say, what do you mean, Royfield? It's not been long. It's been another hour. No, that means I've had, to, I've had to take out another half an hour because I really did let this one go much longer than, than normal. But Laura Babcock, very quickly, where can people find you on social media or on what other media that you're on? Oh, uh, well, Laura Babcock, you can find me at that name on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook. And I also regularly do a News Talk 1010 panel at 7.45 on Wednesday mornings. And uh, I have my own TV show, The O Show, which runs and we we post some of it online and uh, a bunch of other shows that I do during the week on different stations. So, you know, I'm out there. My Twitter feed will always promote where I'm going to be next. Cool. Emma Burnell, um, how about you, Mom? Uh, I write regularly for a site called The Article. So you can often find my work on there. I edit a site called Left Foot Forward about once a month. And I'm on Twitter at, at Emma Burnell underscore. So we're going to record on Wednesday. Hopefully, hopefully, you'll get that show on Wednesday. If not, it'll be Thursday of next week where we uh, look at the results, at least the results which have been published of the US election. Remember, folks, uh, left to centre politics is right politics. It's right thinking politics. We'll see you all again in a few days' time as the world collectively holds its breath as America votes out the orange buffoon. There you go. Take care, everybody. Tatty, Bye. bye. Happy editing, dude. That's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.